Okay, welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, a podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds. And today we have a returning guest, Elvis Leone. Elvis, how are you doing? I'm good, man. Uh, Leon, please. Leon. Leon. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. At least I didn't say Leon like they did, that, like they'll call you in the army, right? Yeah, Leon. Yeah, Leon is all right because everybody calls me that. And it's Memorial Day weekend. So we're here, you know, remembering uh, the fallen and those who served. And, you know, so huge respect to to everyone who put their life on the line to to our literally recording this on, on May 29th, Memorial Day. Uh, exactly. So and Elvis is a veteran as well. So thank you so much for your service. Yeah, yeah, no problem, man. Big, big weekend. And uh I've I've had some friends that passed recently on due to uh, taking their own life, unfortunately, losing oh, wow. a with uh, PTSD. So uh, this is something that a lot of us struggle with and uh, it's not really spoken about, but 22 veterans uh, commit suicide every day in this country. Wow, 22? 22 a day. Um, so that is a huge problem that uh, I hope is addressed and... Um, by by your or at least I, I wanted to bring awareness to that because I lost a really good friend and, and I've been uh I'm mourning for the last few months of this uh un, sudden and untimely death you know I'm sorry to hear that bro and things aren't getting better because I know that the VA I used to live in Washington DC years ago and I know the VA to used to take a lot of steps uh so are cases at least coming down are they are they taking this seriously at veterans affairs and even like dod and things like that or you know i, I try to remove myself from that world so i don't have mm -hmm. any like updated statistics or how they're helping exactly but uh mm -hmm. you know even living here in, in los angeles the, the homeless crisis here is worse than probably anywhere in the rest of the country and mm -hmm. you do see a lot of homeless veterans here. Um, the VA always is doing their best. Uh, and uh, and they have made improvements even since I have started using those services. Because when we first came home, uh, there were just backlog. There was crazy wait lists to get any kind of help whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, and the LAVA is uh, not the best, in my personal opinion. Denver is way better, for sure. Um, for example, I, I tried to actually... Uh, get some mental health, um, uh, a try to find a therapist here. And it's like a three or four month wait period. So wow. it's like if, if so, if you were in a, in a dire situation and a crisis, you have to wait that amount of time or maybe check yourself into the ER. So there's other ways to maybe get immediate help, but that's usually just the emergency room at the VA and they'll sort you out for, for the day or for the week or I don't know, but it's uh, tough times, man, in our country, for sure. Yeah, I can, de I can definitely understand that. Like there's so many systems in America are just so broken, uh, you know, government bureaucracy and, and, and all this is just making it harder and harder. Um, but yeah, El Elvis and I met like, what was it like three years ago now, two years ago during the pandemic. Right. Um, we, we we met up and I think this is your second time appearing on the podcast, you know, the first time uh, where, where I think we had an episode for Hispanic Heritage Month, like two, three years ago. And it's always interesting seeing guests come back to the podcast and how we actually met was because of the story you were trying to tell and you've been trying to tell for, you know, going on a decade now. And we'll, we'll kind of like dive into that. 
But how have you been this past two or three years? We were just talking about uh, before the episode how you did a, a lot of traveling and how you re relocated from Denver to LA. But how have you been this past two, three years since we last spoke? Uh, yeah, like you said, uh, uh, more traveling than I ever imagined that I would ever do in my life. Um, mm -hmm. Google Maps gives me a yearly report. And mm -hmm. in the last three years since the pandemic, I have traveled 120,000 miles, Musa, if you can believe wow. it. Wow. Uh, circumventing the globe three times. I wow. never in my life expected to do this, nor that I want to. But that was like uh, the path that kind of, you know, uh, fell before me. And uh, I was also going through a lot, a tough period. Like I said, a, a difficult breakup. I, I lost a lot of friends along the way. I just been in this weird transitional period. And uh, I adopted this nomad lifestyle that they call it nomad traveling. I, I, I traveled a lot of those miles in solitude. And a lot of that traveling wasn't even fun. I think I was just doing it because I didn't know what else to do. And I wanted mm -hmm. to remove myself from friends and family and uh, mourn by myself. You know, I didn't want to be kind of seen because, uh, you know, the stigma that there's beh behind mental health and stuff. You feel like shame and guilt for feeling these ways. And I, I kind of wanted to hide from the world. So uh, it's been an interesting period, man. But uh, again, I'm very fortunate because not too many people can say that they have traveled uh, this amount. Uh, my stamp, my passport is completely stamped up, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, and all I could show is just uh, gratitude for the ability to even have a the passport that gives me the the opportunity the to access do these kind mm -hmm. of things, you know. So I'm very blessed, but. Um, it was also a very difficult period in my life and uh, the last decade dealing with this true crime story that happened to my family mm -hmm. uh, really changed my, you know, my mentality on a lot of things. You know, we were just saying off camera uh, about uh, or about how broken a lot of these systems are, uh, whether that's uh, the VA or the justice system, like me and my family trying to get justice in denver colorado uh as well as in guatemala so trying to get justice in two countries for this uh you know crime that happened towards my father uh, a kidnapping you know to be exact so mm -hmm. yeah definitely and, and you know let's let's just dive into that so you know when we first met two three years ago um you know we're trying to tell this story in in a documentary in an audio documentary format uh, in a podcast scripted podcast series uh, unfortunately, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of logistical stuff, uh, we made some headway into that, but unfortunately we, we just couldn't pull it together, but I'm happy to have you back on the podcast three years later, seeing that you made some progress. I've seen you in the media one or two times and happy to dive into the story. So our, our listeners, uh, get a taste of that project that we couldn't complete. Right. And, and this is about, you know, your father, um, Orlando's kidnapping in Guatemala uh, almost 10 years ago in, in, in October 2014. Uh, before we dive into that very, very sensitive, I'm sure, you know, your family has been a lot this past decade. Um, let's talk about uh, your dad, Orlando. I know since you've been making this documentary now about the, the case, uh, you and your dad's relationship has grown stronger. 
But what do you remember about your dad kind of like growing up as a kid? Um, my dad was uh, a, a very uh, kind being, um, but also was a very, uh, you know, strict person, you know. So I feel like I saw the, the extremes of my father. I either saw him as a happy, uh, always playing the guitar, singing at parties, and then also seeing his uh, rage, you know, towards uh, uh, others or or us, you know, um, just because, I, I don't know, different times as well, too, you know, um, different generation of how they would handle, um, I guess, uh, discipline, discipline to, to their kids. So, um, but no, yeah, I think that, um, no, you know, my relationship with my dad's always been pretty solid for the most part, but uh, um, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's okay now. And, and it did grow stronger over the years because we uh, traveled uh, most of North America together, you know, uh, and not too many people can say that, that they've done this with their father, but um, during the this uh, kidnapping and uh, and trying to seek justice, I've been following my dad with a camera for about seven years now, you know, and uh, we've driven across eight U.S. states and we've driven from Denver, Colorado, all the way to Guatemala through Texas. And that's like a very a long road trip. And, you know, these road trips, all you have uh, time for is to to talk, you know, so mm -hmm. it's uh uh, getting to know your father in, in a different level, you know, um, because all you have is time to to chat on these uh, long expeditions. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, you know, when you mentioned, you know, your dad being strict and, you know, immigrant parents, you know, like you said, different generation, definitely not sparing the rod, that type mm -hmm. of thing. You know, I, I can totally understand that. Um, but your dad, like, obviously, He's someone as he grew up in Guatemala, from what I understand, and uh, he got into the transport business uh, at some point, uh, transporting cars from um, the U.S. to Latin America or South America and trying to sell those cars in order to make a living for himself and his family. Uh, I think the term is transmigrante. Do you know how your dad got into that line of business? Yeah, it was a friend that that um, basically was saying that there was this uh, business where you can make 100 to 200 percent profits, you know, and that sounds ridiculous. But when uh, you purchase a vehicle, uh, specifically Toyota trucks, that's like the main vehicle that Guatemalans are seeking just because it's a dependable work vehicle and there's an excess amount of parts there so you can always fix these vehicles but uh these these cars pickup trucks are usually sold for like maybe 1500 to 2000 dollars here in the US these vehicles are anywhere from 10 to up to 30 years old but mm -hmm. you can sell them for double or triple the price in Guatemala and my someone told my father about this and he's been doing it for almost 20 years. And on top of the actual truck, uh, people uh, or individuals like my father, like you said, transmigrantes is the the proper nomenclature for these uh, this subculture of Central Americans that import these goods. 
Mm-hmm. They um, they also uh, pack these vehicles with other goods, as, such as uh, washers and dryers, refrigerators, or whatever is requested of them from the client uh, in Guatemala. Got it. Got it. And this must not have been an easy job because I used to be in the trucking industry, right? Kind of like still am, used to have a trucking business, but that was U.S.-based, right? And even moving stuff within the U.S., had his own challenges as far as like security and you know uh just people perils on the road and things like that moving stuff cross border particularly to southern america i imagine your dad must have encountered a lot of stuff right like in the early days what what were some of those stories that he told you guys about the challenges faced on the road transporting these cars to south america well, you know, driving through Mexico can get dangerous in some areas, especially in some of the regions where cartels uh, are above the law or actually are the law, you know, um, because s- some of these uh, states in Mexico, there's uh, police checkpoints that are cartel police, not actually uh, governed uh, police, you know, by mm-hmm. the by the country. So, yeah, going through these areas, it's it's kind of like, I don't know, they, you can call it like a bandit country, right? Because um, there's a lot of pirates, there's a lot of theft, there's a, uh, having to pay bribes for your release, or police will pull you over and say, hey, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. Mm-hmm. So we could either unload everything in your truck and review everything and waste three four hours of your day or you can just give us a hundred dollars right now and you can move on so uh that's a part of the expenditures that that you have to take into uh, account when you go on these trips Uh, my father would always have a separate uh wad of a hundred dollar bills that would Mm -hmm. be used strictly for bribing so greasing the pockets as they say (laughs) Got it. Got it. And so what happened like leading up to the incident uh, in October 2014 uh, when your dad got kidnapped? Like, was there any sign? Was it, was it just a regular trip that, hey, you know, was transporting a car for a client or was it unusual, that particular load unusual? What what happened leading up to that particular trip? Um. Well, my my dad was hired by this uh, this client that he had worked with in the past, and this was an, a routine delivery. Um, it, it was of a of a box truck specifically, and the box truck was completely full of furniture and electronics and all, all kinds of random things. And that vehicle was in a pretty bad car accident in Mexico, and the police impounded that truck and my father was immediately uh, told that this this had happened because my dad wasn't driving this truck he had facilitated uh someone to drive the vehicle because he was unable to so he put the client in touch with a different driver so when that driver got in an accident the client blamed my father for making that poor connection in their eyes right mm-hmm. um so that's was the driver concerned. okay the driver who was driving the truck uh yeah yeah For, you know he went to the doctor he got mm-hmm. banged up but he was released a couple of days later but um 
the uh that's when things got weird um these guys started acting uh very aggressive uh towards my father about getting this vehicle out of this impound lot immediately um my father it took my father a couple weeks to to get it out of there mm -hmm. and uh he did it though he did it he rescued the vehicle managed to get it to guatemala it was wreckage you know but he kind of hauled this uh, totaled box truck to Guatemala and gave it to the um, the client there. The client, what and, was the uh, value of? I mean, for a box truck for for people who are listening, you know, outside the U.S., it's kind of like a twenty six foot uh, truck. You know, kind of not like the long semi trucks, but kind of like half of that. But um, since the vehicle was already banged up, like what was the value of the vehicle or the contents in the vehicle that made the client so? eager to get this delivered i mean if it was if the car was going there to be sold and you know it wasn't a crash like there was no more value right so why, why was why were they pressing your dad to still get out the junkyard to deliver that well, well that's a big mystery to this day and um, there's been a lot of theories of what was in that vehicle and you know we can get uh to that in a second but it's been theorized by the police and and by people close to the situation that there was either a lot of cash in that car that was hidden in uh, the, the electronics or the furniture uh, or weapons or both. So mm. uh, we, we've heard uh, we've heard all, all, of, all of that and in between. So but um, fast forward to or backtracking a bit. My, my father delivered the vehicle to these individuals. They shook hands. They said, goodbye. We'll see you back in Denver. And my dad went home, went to sleep. The very next morning, those same individuals came to uh, uh, knocking on my, my dad's uh, door in, in his house in Guatemala. And they invited him to go get something to drink, some breakfast. My dad thought that was a very odd that they came unannounced mm -hmm. and and within the next minute, someone pulled a gun on my father and pistol whipped him uh, in his face, broke his teeth and um, threw him in the back of the truck. And my dad woke up, you know, several hours later, tied a sandwich in between two guys. And there was two men driving in the front. And uh, they, they took him into an undisclosed location to an unmarked grave. And that's when the ransom negotiations began between us and uh, these kidnappers uh, while we were sitting in Denver, Colorado. And this is such a wild story, right? Because typically, like, kidnappers don't allow their identity <laughs> to, be, to be revealed, right? They can plot and plan. Uh, but in this case, like, you know, again, too many things connecting. There was this client your dad was delivering for. He had shook their hand the day before. They had invited him out and suddenly he's somewhere in a grave, in a graveyard being kidnapped. Like, was it that they just didn't care or this was more of like some type of intimidation tactic? Because clearly they, they should have known that your, your father kind of like put can put one or two together and know where this is coming from, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe did your dad not even initially consider it a kidnapping? Maybe you just consider, well, I guess it was an abduction either way, or maybe you just consider it something else and not that. 
Yeah, I think my dad was incredibly confused because, uh, well, again, th these are men that he knew. These are men that he's worked with in the past. These are men that live in our community in Denver, Colorado. So that was the, the strange part. It was like, why would they even attempt to do any anything like this? Because you're right. They didn't do it with ski mask on or anything, you know, bare face, friend and acquaintances, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Uh, that also kind of is a, a lesson of you can't really trust everyone you come in contact with because Facts. you you don't know who who they are uh, behind closed doors. So, Facts. Facts. So, so what happened like when your dad was transported to this grave site? Um, how did they reach out to your family? How did that start to unfold? So when I personally got the call, it was uh, on a Saturday morning and my mom called me crying saying that someone had kidnapped my dad and obviously that's a phone call you never imagine to ever receiving mm -hmm. so i didn't even know where to begin uh, but the first thought in my head was like i'm gonna race home and get my gun and that was uh because my brother had called me soon after and says i know these guys i've met them and they live uh, in lafayette colorado uh, that's about 30 miles from our house in, in Aurora, Colorado. Um, so uh, so when my brother said he knew where they lived, I'm like, well, let's go talk to them. And I went and got my gun, you know, and, and I think about that day all the time because I feel like if we didn't find them. Um, I, we drove up and down the street. My brother couldn't quite, you know, pinpoint uh, where that house was. But I was always thinking about what if we had found that house mm. what would have happened then, you know, uh, emotions were high, anger was high. So, and while we were driving, uh, looking for this house, I was on the call. I was on the phone, uh, trying to get a hold of the FBI, uh, and calling the police, trying to get any kind of help or assistance. And we had just left the Aurora police department that completely dismissed us. They're like, this isn't real. They're like, this is a hoax. Your father's playing tricks on you. Your father must be in debt. This is what the this is what the police guys. were telling you. Yeah. The police said your father must be in debt. He's lying to you so he can get money from you guys. Like, and I'm like, well, anyways, we, we can get to that. I'm still upset ab ab about that. But so we we left the Aurora Police Department in search of these men, and I'm on the phone with the FBI. And they say, we can't do anything. They're like, you need to file a complaint on the Internet Crimes uh, website on their on their page. The, uh, the Internet internet Crime? Yeah, it's, it's called IC3, IC3.gov or something like that. So okay. any, um, I guess it, it, they call it Internet Crime or Scam, I, you, you can report there. So they directed us there and they just said, good luck. We're on our own. And this and is the FBI telling this you this. This is the FBI. The FBI. And then, and immediately I was just like swarmed with anger because I was like, this can't be real. You know, like these institutions are here supposedly to help us in times of crisis. And this is the one of the biggest crises that our family has seen. Maybe even the city of Aurora. I don't know. You know, mm -hmm. like this is a serious 
crime, international crime, and no one cared. And that was actually the beginning of my mental health decline because it was almost like the um, the veil was lifted of mm. society for me. Again, because, I mean, I had seen this already when I swore an oath to defend the country and then you come home after going to war, losing friends, seeing friends lose limbs and their minds, and then you come home and then there's zero help, zero services. And that was the first time that I felt betrayed right you know? and uh, you know i got that under control it took a couple years to get my ptsd uh, un- under uh, under control and then then this happened and i was like wow they re- they really don't care about us this is quite amazing right because if um you know a tourist you know an american tourist a 19 year old uh tourist backpacking through a country who's who's white for instance you know something happens to them you you hear the stories of american embassy and the u.s you know using all their minds to to resolve that issue but here you are a veteran and you know you're facing this challenge just south of the american border in south america and you know you're you're being told kind of like good luck so i can definitely see how you kind of like felt betrayed by your country having been deployed and served in the U.S. Army to defend the country yourself. Do you do you think race or any type of bias was at play there? Or, uh, how they just saw that, oh, okay, this is uh, maybe a Hispanic family. This thing happened in Guatemala. Uh, we don't really care. Do, do you think that was at play? You know, that thought, there's no other way or no other reason why I wouldn't believe that right because again like I've heard the stories that you just mentioned and I I always imagine like what if I I was a white person what if I was a son of a senator or some kind of representative if things would have have changed and um, but yeah you know I think about that all the time man but you know as we progress months and years later when the FBI finally believed us um, you know, those initial meetings, they were like, your dad has to be a narco. Your dad has to mm. be a drug Wow, they told you this to your face? Oh, yeah, definitely. Hmm. Yeah, uh, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Enforcement Agency, the Drug Enforcement Agency said, it, we will not help you unless you your father admits that he was guilty of something. Because they're like, that's the only reason people get kidnapped is if they're involved in something nefarious mm. and so that another slap to the face like that was such so so disrespectful you know for them mm-hmm. to even go that route initially but but yeah man uh, that's i guess so man i think racism was it was at play or i don't know again the system is broken you know for right. sure definitely understand but how 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 long like your dad was still in their custody right so mm-hmm. as you're trying to convince the FBI and get law enforcement kind of like up their ass to do something like how many days or weeks did that take cuz you know your dad is still in in captivity right so how yeah. long did that take for them to start for the motions to start you know well the, to be honest well we you know back to to the night of the kidnapping you know um it's uh, that was a Saturday and they were asking us for $20,000 uh, for my father's release. 
and it was a Saturday night into Sunday, and it was a holiday weekend um, in Guatemala specifically too. So the banks were closed. Uh, and wait, what holiday was that? Sorry, October. I felt like there was a the banks were closed in the U.S. We couldn't access money until Monday. Or oh, the banks were closed in, on Sunday in general. Mm-hmm. So that that was the situation. So um, twenty thousand dollars, and and uh, we negotiated. And we, my father was released on Sunday after we managed to get the money, but we weren't able to get the money till Monday, but they allowed my father to go free with the stipulation. If they didn't receive that 20 grand by that certain time, they were going to go back and kill everybody in my dad's uh, area and his, uh, the village that he lives in, which is- oh, so uh, you're- so your dad was in custody for 24 hours and yep. he was released. Did he come back to the U.S. immediately? He was released on Sunday. And how did you guys, did you guys end up paying that ransom? How did that unfold? Um, so my, we, my dad did not come home, which was a, a huge problem for us because we thought that, you know, now that he was free, he was going to immediately come back. But that's actually when I realized what kind of person my father was, because after he experienced this horrific thing, he immediately said, I'm not leaving until I file a report and get the police active and get them to get these guys. Like we need to get, we need the, to the Guatemalan them. police. The Guatemalan police. Okay. So my dad's like, I'm not leaving until the police are after these guys. And I was like, whoa, like that was when I realized that my dad was brave uh, or, or foolish. I don't know. <laughs> right. But uh, but uh, so my dad stayed another week after wow. he was released. Uh, he was getting he had to get uh, some uh, minor dental treatment because his teeth were knocked out. So he, he had to get some uh, temporary fix uh, for his teeth. He spent a couple of days going through uh, different uh, police stations because uh the he was kidnapped in one state and then he was uh transported to a different state in guatemala mm-hmm. um so um so he went to both regions and filed uh complaints and um and then yeah he, he came home he came home and, and it was uh uh you know obviously we never thought we'd see him again i mean that was my initial thought was we're never going to recuperate his body, you know, when, when and, he was taken. And, and in the meantime, so two questions. How did the Guatemalan police react compared to the American police in, here in Aurora? And did you guys end up paying that ransom when the banks opened on Monday? We, we paid the ransom when the banks opened that Monday. First thing in the morning, we were at Wells Fargo on Sable in Mississippi, um, in Aurora, Colorado. And we paid, we had the money, we deposited, we told the bank teller what this was for, because we were trying to figure out who this person was. And they, the kidnappers gave us a bank account number, which we automatically assumed it belonged to somebody in Guatemala. That's only natural. The kidnapping happened there. So when we get to Wells Fargo and we give them this bank account number, they're like, this is not a Guatemalan bank account number. This is this belongs to somebody in the States. And we were like, 
unbelievable. Like what is happening right now? And uh, this teller, you know, broke protocols. She turns, she's like, you didn't see this. Don't say anything. She turned the computer screen over to us. And we saw the name of the person who received the money. And he lived in Lafayette, Colorado. Did you recognize that name? I didn't recognize him at the time, but as soon as we told my father, he knew exactly who he was and where he lived, and he had seen them before. This is pretty, again, this is pretty interesting because, again, like, this breaks all the protocol for, like, I'm Nigerian, right? And, you know, um, we have our own issues with kidnapping in northern Nigeria, eastern Nigeria, and again, like, it's like, hey, people come with ski masks. You don't know who they are. When you're delivering the ransom, you're delivering cash. This is delivering to a bank account. Your, your dad knows who he did business with. He know, knew he interacted with. It's just like a blatant kind of like disregard and all the information available for you guys to take to law enforcement. Um, did you guys do all that with the bank account number and follow up with law enforcement? And how did they react to all this information? Well, um, I we did go through that formal IC3 online form. So we included all of this information, the names, the bank account number, you name it. And we never heard anything back. <laughs> no one at the FBI ever reached back. So we were waiting and waiting. And I was trying to follow up with them. And I got zero response back from the FBI. So uh, it wasn't until six months later. Six months later, an arrest happened. An arrest happened in Guatemala. So that was... Uh, through the uh, Guatemalan police or through the American police? Or through, the FBI? through the Guatemalan police. And wow. that was actually shocking because obviously when you think about police south of the border, you the first thought is corruption. They're not to be trusted. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was actually like a breath of fresh air. Like, oh my God. Like the police in Guatemala are actually doing their jobs. Like they actually did a full-on investigation and they found one of the four men who kidnapped my dad and he got arrested and it was in the newspaper uh, down there. And so it was like a huge deal. And even having that initial press was what got the FBI and Homeland Security interested in the case finally, because mm -hmm. it was like, okay, well, maybe they're not lying, you know? So so that that actually started started a new chapter in this whole uh, investigation that uh, lasted years. I mean, because even after that initial arrest, uh, there was a, a pending uh, trial that kept getting pushed back. So uh, this was uh, 2015, and there wasn't a trial until 2018. Uh, oh, 2019. Wow. Yeah, so justice is slow, you know? So it kept getting pushed back every summer they're like oh it'll be next summer oh next summer next summer so next summer uh, i like the courts only operate during the summer or I, I don't know but they that's what they kept telling us uh but during this entire this uh you know several year period there were still three men on the run in guatemala and then there was the two men who, who, who was the person arrested like how was what was the person like an associate or was the person like the main suspect uh, he was the main suspect, and he was the the man who received the damaged vehicle. Same guy that came and um, you know came the next morning wanting to grab a a coffee, right? Uh, and was he in custody these three years, or he got bailed out while you guys were in, waiting? 
he was in custody the three years and uh, oh wow some weird things happened in between that the the access that guatemalan prisoners have is different than the american prisoners because there was a period uh prior to the trial uh in 2018 that that where this man in jail was calling my dad and threatening my family that was going to go and testify so like that they he was calling on a regular basis from jail okay initially it was in a threatening manner and this was like maybe three or four calls where he was like if you show up to testify you will die i'll kill your mother i'll kill you know whoever right right and then as maybe reality was starting to set for this guy that like maybe he wasn't going to leave jail the phone calls actually turned into pleads of i've been here for these many years my mother's sick please like will you like l- lie on the stand so i can be free and tend to my sick mother so like wow. the, the calls you know turned into that manner uh where like it was just like a a poor, poor man, you know, down on his luck, pleading for for help. And then the next wave of calls were his lawyers. And his lawyers were like, hey, this guy is offering to repay the ransom money to you guys. Wow. After three years? After three years. He was just like, and the lawyers. So did, know, did, being, that, did that count in Wells Fargo belong to him or an associate of his? An associate of his. So, uh, well, it was. It's actually a brother of his, and uh, the brother is the one who received the money and organized the kidnapping from Aurora, who is still free to this day and was never investigated. It seems like a pretty open and shut case, if you ask me. So, why did it take that long to to get the trial going? Um, in Guatemala, um, I I don't. Well, you know, again, I'm not sure if it's a system where they want these individuals to serve time, you know, because they mm. did commit a serious crime. So right. you can't really rush to go to a trial, I think, you know? So right. uh, I think they have to serve, you know, their, their punishment, you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, no. So these lawyers started calling and, and uh, saying, Hey, you can get your money back and we can make money in the process everybody's happy you know so and my dad was just like f you i don't know if i can curse on this show but he's yeah, like sure. uh, uh yeah fuck you like we're we're going all the way with this don't call me again and and um my dad went to uh testify you know soon after and and during this time this three years um, how are things with uh, the Leon family? How are things with your dad? Did he continue that business, continue to deliver cars even after this ordeal? What was your mom's reaction? What was the family going through during this period? Yeah, uh, it's a tough time that I don't really like like to think about too much because uh, it, it severed my family in a lot of ways and um, it strained my parents' relationship uh, there was a point where they almost separated over this just because uh, my father's, uh, how should I say, his, uh, uh, not not infatuation, but desire for justice. Obsession, right. Yeah, his obsession. His obsession for justice started teetering into uh, 
a dangerous, dangerous levels because since he knew who these individuals were, are, and w- when the when we started actually having serious conversations with uh, the FBI and Homeland Security, they were uh, basically telling us to get more evidence for them to do a proper investigation. So they were asking my father to instigate phone calls with these guys. They were asking him to go and find their addresses and find their networks. That doesn't sound like FBI protocol according to movies. Is it different in real life where they ask the the victim to to be involved in that way? Exactly. And, you know, the thing is that that is such a dangerous thing for them to have asked us to do, which my dad took serious, you know, and I don't know. My mom says this a lot. Like my dad watches too many movies. So I think he, you know, saw this as his opportunity to have this like, you know, I don't know, adventure, you know, and and Mm. some kind of crime investigation. So he he basically was going out at night and spying on these guys and finding their wow. addresses. We found their Facebook profile photos. And, you know, I here in I, Colorado or in Guatemala, in Colorado, in Colorado. Yeah. Okay. In Colorado. So, okay. So that means the FBI was more concerned on the Colorado side, as far as like the ransom payment and whatnot. Yeah. They, they almost didn't care uh, about the Guatemala stuff. I think that was just out of their jurisdiction. And also they're like, well, they made an arrest. So they already did their job, you know? So they, right. but the fact that the money was tied to Denver, that's where, um, you know, maybe it piqued the interest of these agencies. But again, like it's unbelievable that they put us at risk like that because if we would have, you know, gotten ourselves into a dangerous or fatal situation in Denver, it would have just been another, you know, more brown people dead and they wouldn't have cared. They wouldn't have gave a shit. So. And and was your dad still doing this transmigrante business during this time? um, He promised that he would only um, do this work uh, and hand off the vehicles at the Texas, Mexico border. So, Uh, financially this like almost destroyed my dad's business overnight because you make the maximum profits if you can you know make the 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 journey all the way all the way through all the way through so he was kind of one you know one foot in one foot out in the business trying his best but you know that's that's all he knew you know was this business for 20 years so him trying to reinvent himself you know and in his 60s uh, didn't seem like a viable option. So he, he tried his best, um, but, you know, not, you know, bringing in home, you know, the, the money that he used to, that also caused uh, strain. And then again, his obsession with trying to get justice and essentially putting our family at risk, right? Because if these guys right. live in Denver, they know where we live, actually. So they've been to our house before, you know? Um, so that was always... Uh, just a scary it was a scary times and it still is because uh I, I think we'll never be able to really uh live comfortably without thinking that someone's watching us or wh- who's that weird car strange car parked outside of the house that was mm. a big concern you know post post kidnapping was uh just uh seeing just strange individuals or strange vehicles parked in the house was just like is that them you right. know, and, and that's going to be uh, kind of our paranoia for, for the rest of our lives, potentially. 
Right. And from what I understand, your family kind of like amped up on security as well. Yeah, my, my family was never, um, you know, we ne we've never had weapons at home, you know, um, but since then, uh, yeah, my, my parents purchased weapons, um, you know, we installed security cameras. Uh, my my parents started, you know, going out on weekends and learning how to shoot guns. And so then that was crazy. I'm like, my mom is shooting guns now. Like, what the hell is going on? You know, right. like, like the, this is this is so strange. Um, but, yeah, you know, me being you know former military, I, I definitely, you know, helped and, and trained um, them on certain situations. And and uh, I hope they never get to have to use any of that. Right. Um, uh, it's still a concern. Did your dad have to go down for the court proceedings in Guatemala when that kicked off? Yeah, so that that was another strange. So we were uh, in communication with the Guatemalan embassy in Denver, and they had uh, offered to um, for us to do our testimonies in their conference room in the Guatemalan embassy. Mm -hmm. So that was great because we're like, amazing. We don't have to actually go down there. And uh, one week before uh, the the trial was taking place, the judge, for whatever reason, in Guatemala said, you have to do it in person. You can't do it at the Guatemalan embassy. And that was actually scary because uh, we didn't mention this, but like the night of the kidnapping, when the kidnappers said not to contact the police, uh, that was a huge decision for us to make, but we opted to do it. And when we called the Guatemalan authorities, within five minutes, the kidnappers called us back and said, we know you called the cops, do it again and we'll kill your dad. Uh, oh, wow. So, so they had access. Well, I, I guess you mentioned corruption in, in, in South American law enforcement. So they probably had people yeah, on so the inside. So then when, uh, you know, when lawyers were calling us trying to repay our ransom money, and then when the judge uh, canceled this uh, Guatemalan embassy uh, uh, video conference, we were like, this this has to be all a part of the same corruption. Right. Like they, they This is a setup. They want us to go down there so we can, you know, get killed or whatever, you know? So my mom, uh, our family decided that my mom could not go like, like there's no way she can go you know she didn't end up going and later when uh the the case was dropped the lawyers blamed my mother for this guy being released because she was unable to go but Who, who's was, lawyer like your your lawyers blamed your mother yeah like the like the da the district attorney and like the police ah, on the american yeah. side right, uh, right no 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 guatemalan side guatemalan oh. Got it. The Americans were not involved in the trial at all. You know, this was strictly a Guatemalan affair. Um, well, how was your mom like your, your dad was the victim, right? Oh, I guess because she was the one they contacted and she was some type of a witness to the whole thing. And she didn't. Uh, well, her, her bank account was used. Was used. Ah, I yeah, see. Yeah, 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 that's why. So that um, means her but, part of the story wasn't admissible in, in court or wasn't used during the case, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so since she couldn't show in person, they just basically dismissed her and and she was like one of the key witnesses. So since she didn't testify, uh that that hurt the case, um, according to the the, the police on our side. 
But, you know, uh, one step further, uh, and the key eyewitness uh, who helped rescue my father when he was released in the middle of nowhere, uh, he went to pick him up and took him to the first police stations to file those initial reports. He denied that the kidnapping happened the day of the trial. Uh, and mm. he was intimidated the weeks prior. Um, he, he Someone broke into his apartment, destroyed the place, uh, sent him a strong message. Basically, if you testify, we'll kill you. Right. Um, and when he testified, he basically said, I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. And when that happened, plus my mom not being able to go, right. uh, the case was dropped and the kidnapper was released. Wow. When when did this happen? When was the case dropped? This was like the early 2019. So 2014 to 2019. So five years. Mm -hmm. uh, at which point the suspect was in custody and your family had to go through all this in five years back and forth to Guatemala. And the case was eventually dropped. Like, I'm sure you guys must have expended a lot of resources. You had paid the ransom, your, your you know, the, the traveling cost, your, your father's business wasn't picking up. How did that news of the case being dropped? How did your dad and your family take that news? Uh, it was crushing, man. You know, that was the first time that I saw my dad, you know, almost cry. You know, I don't he might have cried in private, but uh, it, it was a, a very difficult uh, moment and seeing my dad in that state and and me too i mean i i was devastated just because uh, like you said all the traveling all the expenses uh just being too close to the story and and for like justice not to be served when it's such a clear cut case mm -hmm. and being disrespected by us law enforcement where they didn't take it serious ever Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, you know, even when they did entertain um, our, our our pleads after that arrest, it seemed like it was hopeful, but it never really was. I don't think it was ever close. And every time we ask for updates, they're like, we cannot confirm nor deny that there's an open investigation. And mm. so in my eyes, they never did anything um, or uh, even attempted to. And so that that's still pretty disgraceful uh, to this they, day. They couldn't confirm if there was an open investigation to the people who instigated the investigation. That's weird to, yeah. to the to the victims of the of the crime. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not like a third party. No, exactly. Exactly. And uh, oh, we didn't mention this, you know, before we get too far. Like there's uh, the article that came out in. 5280 magazine that details mm -hmm. all of this from uh, every point of view, from the authorities to uh, Guatemalan uh, individuals who are, uh, are uh, involved in in the situation. Yeah, and we'll have a link to that article uh, and your website. And th this is another angle, right? Like that article came about because um, you just so happened to be a documentary filmmaker like after the military you went to film school you picked up a camera um you did your first uh uh kind of like short or or you know i don't know what they call in the for your first uh media production i guess i'll call it and you know you you started to get interested in the case because it happened to your family and you started documenting it and you said you'd been following your dad around for the past seven years kind of like documenting it like why did you decide to start 
telling this story about your your family's i guess very sensitive issues and and what makes you want to make this public uh well i i started for that reason that uh it was the only way that i could fight back it mm. was like my, my manner was to let me document these injustices because they're going to come in play in the future you know and 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 then also uh, uh, on top of that i was uh doing uh, different types of workshops in Denver uh, to help veterans get through uh, PTSD. And there was a, a wave during that period of like 2013 to 2015, where like art therapy started becoming a thing, even within the VA system, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, filmmaking workshops or just any kind of different art stuff uh, for veterans. And, uh, and there was a lot of, uh, uh, just uh, hopeful signs that that it was actually helping people process their trauma in a different way. So I actually tried to apply that for my father because I knew that he would never go see a psychiatrist or any mm. kind of therapist just coming from a different generation. Right. So I was like, you know what? It's helped people that I've worked with in the past. It's helped me. Well, let me put a camera in front of my dad and maybe give him a platform to at least speak about these things and vent and kind of think of process process this traumatic event you know between uh he and i you know on camera so i did it to help him you know um but uh i didn't know it was gonna uh, that i'd be documenting this long uh i didn't know that i would end up with you know five six hundred hours of footage uh that i've accumulated from 2015 to um 2021 uh, I've been filming that entire period and uh, screaming from the mountaintops for help uh, to local law enforcement or journalists or uh, production companies for any kind of assistance to try to uh, tell the story and uh, and, you know, do this injustice uh, right, you know. Uh, so that, that's kind of where I'm at now. And that that article in 5280 magazine uh, just uh, happened this January. It was an interesting process. They they interviewed me and my family over the course of four or five months. Uh, there were several fact checkers uh, involved. Um, so it's a very thorough piece and uh, we're, we're proud of uh, of how it turned out. But like you said, it's also scary because our story is finally public and this magazine is available at every major grocery store uh, in Denver, Colorado. And these are the same grocery stores that these individuals go to. So mm. it's not, uh, it wouldn't be a shocker if they came across this and how will they uh, take this, you know? Yeah, so especially it, now that the case has been dropped and they're free, right? It, exactly. So will, will they see this as like, an attack on them no one's named you know uh mm -hmm. some of the names have been changed you know um to to protect everyone i guess uh, across the board but yeah that's a big concern you know um i don't know if the the more people that see it can provide security i believe you know um mm -hmm. just because uh at least there's uh awareness but also right. the more people that see it, the the word can, can spread back to, to these individuals, you know? Definitely. And beyond the local magazine, like you said, you know, you've 
garnered like 600 hours of footage. You live in LA now and you're looking to make a documentary out of it. So, you know, um, you're even looking to push the story bigger. Like what are your plans for all of that footage and, and what do you want to get as an output out of, out of all of this uh, material you have? Yeah, a feature documentary, a 90-minute film is has always been the goal. Um, a series is also possible. And since the article has come out, it's, uh, it's actually been pretty interesting because I have been contacted by movie companies interested and, in, uh, you know, maybe taking this to the next level. Uh, you know, it's all early talks and uh, nothing's promised. And I, and I have had these conversations in the past that went nowhere. Mm. Uh, but in my mind, I think it's still... Uh, it's utmost priority for me personally to finish this because it has taken up so much of my time that it it it's uh I feel like I'm shackled to this thing. I feel like I, I'm a slave to this uh project. And again, I've been on it for way longer than I ever expected. And I feel like I'll never be able to get my mental freedom back until I actually finish this. So that that's where I'm at now. I don't know how I'm gonna do this, but I really need to finish this because it's it's trained me in, in more ways than than you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, totally understand. Totally understand your perspective. Kind of like also maybe providing some type of closure uh, to your family as well, and maybe also getting some help. You know, through this spreading the word. Um, how can people who are listening to this? And I know you said you've always had you've all always had people reach out to you but say someone is listening to this and want to be involved in the project in some way or just want to support your family you know financially or maybe they're part of some organization that can help you out in one way or the other um how can they how can they support you what are the ways in which you are soliciting for support and how can they reach out to you for that type of support um well uh, i'm about to launch a crowdfunding campaign a crowdfunding campaign to uh, at least get the seed money to start editing this project. And all that information can be found on storiesbyelvis.com. Um, and yeah, you know, it's going to be an uphill battle uh, just to even get this, this money. It's tough times right now. You know, everybody's clutching to every cent they're having. And, uh, you know, this post-pandemic world that we're in now, it's not the same. And it's a terrible time to try to fundraise, but uh, I feel like it, that's basically my my primary goal right now is to try to uh, finish telling the story, you know. And um, but yeah, if anyone out there, any organizations or anyone wants to support in any way on the film production side, video editing side, uh, I would love to even just chat with you. And uh, yeah, once again, storiesbyelvis.com. Definitely. And we'll have the link to that in the show notes as well. You guys can, can go there and get a glimpse of, you know, some of the footage and, and more details about Elvis's and the Leon's family story. Um, what about the name? We are lions. Like what does that represent? Why did you choose that name? And, and is that the final name that you want for this story? Uh, yeah. For now, for now, you know, uh, I want to go for the Spanish version. Somos leones. We are lions, and well, my my family's last name is, is uh, Leon, which you know translation is lion, and uh, the the thought process behind it is obviously uh, these family 
being brave enough like a lion to go into the lion's den back to the scene of the crime, which we didn't even speak about actually. Mm -hmm. uh, me and my father, uh, after the trial uh, drops, uh, the case is dropped, me and my father still go back uh, one year later Wow! Uh, to get closure. So we go back. And the other thing too, you know, with having these dangerous individuals around, I'm, I'm grouping them into Somos Leones. Like they're also, uh, you know, it's just brave, uh, not brave, but like dangerous, uh, right. dangerous actors that, that are there. So whatever the lion uh, means to uh, the definition of being a lion, that's kind of what uh, like this title represents is just everyone included from the, the good, the good people to the, to the evil people. Got it. Definitely understand that. And man, this is, you know, a whole lot. Um, not a lot of people get to go through so much turmoil and, you know, your family has endured a lot and, you know, hopefully um, the family can find closure in, in some way. Um, definitely with our little platform, you know, we'll amplify the story as much as we can also putting in touch with a few other podcasters to see how we can get this out there. But I'm sorry for what you went through and hopefully we can, we can get this, you know, closure, final closure. What is one thing? Um, I don't know from your ordeal, cause there, there's so many parts to the story, right? The PTSD, uh, pulling the veil back and getting to see the government for what it is, feeling that sense of betrayal, uh, the immigrant story, the family, what are one or two lessons you think you can share from any one of those angles to listeners right now? Um, and, and that can, you know, tie to maybe how to, how to handle grief, how to deal with the government, how to, you know, be secure from any, any angle from the mm -hmm. story, what are two, one or two lessons you feel you can share? Uh, the, the one thing that, that immediately popped up is actually uh, coming from my father. My, the, the one thing that my father uh, wants to, um, the message he wants to share is that uh, he just believes that we all need to step up and uh, step up and speak out against injustice because uh, these actors who have taken over our communities and, uh, and countries, uh, depending on where you're from, uh, they have really uh, instilled fear in our community mm. where people can't even speak back, you know, because uh, of retribution. And that's what my father was saying. Like, he's, you know, willing to die for justice. Wow. You know? And and that was his main message is that we need to we need to speak up, you know, when when we're, we're seeing our communities falling apart by these individuals that aren't taking care of us or don't have the best interests uh, uh, right. of us, you know? So that's, that would say that was, that's the main message for now. Got it. And thank, thank you so much, Elvis, uh, for sharing the story. I, I know it mustn't be easy for you because, uh, you know, you're reliving some of these experiences and sharing that story. We appreciate you. And again, you know, like I said, you know, our little platform, you know, amplifying the story as much as we can. And you guys check out Elvis's website, storiesbyelvis.com. We'll have uh, the link in the show notes as well. So you can um, continue to follow this story. And, and when Elvis has that fundraiser up, we'll also amplify that through the Culture Class podcast uh, platforms on social media as well. 
Elvis, thank you so much. Uh, your dad has a heart of a lion, I guess the last name, Leon, and you as well for how far you've taken this. I appreciate you coming on the podcast to tell your story. Thank you so much, Nusa, and uh, I'll see you in Denver soon. Definitely. And for our listeners, this is Culture Class Podcast. Uh, you can follow us at cultureclasspodcast.com. Um, we'll have Elvis, uh, Elvis's uh, profile up on the website. Uh, follow us on social media and send us an email at cultureclasspodcast at gmail.com if you want to be connected to Elvis or if you want to comment on the story, uh, let us know. Till next episode, thank you so much for listening and be well. Be well.